0: Father thank you for the reading of your word even the careful reading brings light to our eyes so that we understand it in fresh ways it captivates our hearts how can we not be moved by these words that while we still have the perishable, one day there is coming a time when the imperishable will be put on and immortality will be experienced. And then, then we will say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? For there will be none. And the sting that we've experienced in death will be vanquished forever. It's a good day coming. And we rest in that. We anticipate it because of what Christ has done as the first fruits from the resurrection of the dead. And so, Father, as we come to the table of communion this morning, might we be enriched and Might we delight in a new way, a renewed way, uh, the resurrection of our Savior and the hope of our coming resurrection. And might we be emboldened in every way by this reality. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tomorrow is an important day. I don't have a monitor up here. That's not what's important tomorrow, though. <laughs> but tomorrow is an important day. You know, you know. Tomorrow, um, tomorrow is October 31, and of course, October 31 is an important day, and not just for the sake of accumulating as much chocolate as you can as quickly as you can, because I'm all in on that. No, tomorrow is an important day because it is Reformation Day, and we remember that. On October 31, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses against the Roman Catholic Church on the door of the church in Wittenberg, and tomorrow is the 505th anniversary of that remarkable event. The Reformation was about a return to biblical truth that has been articulated in five short statements. Sola Scriptura, Sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, and soli Deo gloria. The Scriptures alone are our guide to the truth. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, thank you Rob, is our means of salvation. And all of that is accomplished and all that we do in life is for the glory of God alone. That's what the Reformation was about. The cross and His work are central to those realities. It is a reminder, those five statements about the importance of Christ, the importance of His work, the importance of our salvation, and the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of the Scriptures, the sufficiency of the cross and the resurrection for all those who believe in Him. Nothing else is needed when you believe Christ. That's the Reformation. While not always included in their arguments, the resurrection was an essential part of the Reformers' defense of these truths. And it became an important motive for them in serving Christ. For instance, we find in Luther's theses that he refuted the Roman Catholic teaching that, quote, speaking about the Roman Catholic doctrine... The indulgences of the Pope, by the indulgences of the Pope, a man is loosed and saved from all punishment. Luther was fighting against that and saying, Salvation doesn't come by the Pope or by indulgences, it comes implied by the cross and by the resurrection of Christ. He also argued that, quote, vain is the hope of salvation through letters of pardon, even if a commissary, nay even the pope himself, were to pledge his own soul for them. There's only one soul that can save a sinner. It's the soul of Christ. And he further articulated, In Theses 76, we affirm that papal pardons cannot take away even the least of venial sins as regard its guilt. Nothing can take away the guilt of man even for the simplest of sins except the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation was only in Christ in Christ alone. Luther and the other reformers believed in the singular necessity of Christ's death and resurrection for our salvation. And that is fitting for us as we come to the table of communion this morning. As we think this morning about Reformation Day, as we think about communion, as we think about our ministry goal of excelling still more this year, I want to look with you at a passage that ties all of those ideas together in one verse. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. The end of that magnificent chapter, the apostle writes this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What we will discover in this passage, be renewed by, made hopeful by, is to be constant in the gospel work because of the gospel's work in you. Be diligent, pursuing work of ministry, because of the resurrection power of Christ that is working in you to transform you, because of what the resurrection has done for us, we are compelled to work tirelessly for the sake of the resurrection gospel. And in this one verse, the apostle exhorts the Corinthians to three ministry tasks because of the reality of the resurrection. Three tasks that are set before us and the Corinthians because of the reality of the resurrection. Now, as we come to this, let me set the table, as you will, about the context. Remember, all of this is predicated, everything he's going to say in this verse is predicated by that one word, therefore. He's drawing a conclusion. He's he's summarizing... Perhaps the entire book, but I think more likely he's summarizing the entire chapter that he has spent speaking about the resurrection. Everything that he has articulated about the resurrection culminates in this one final conclusion. Because of what he has said, defending the reality of the resurrection, this is what ought to be remembered, pursued, and done in light of that he's making this defense of the resurrection in all this chapter and isn't it a most magnificent defense of the gospel he's making that because of what he says in verse 12 if christ is preached remember he's saying this is the heart of the gospel is to preach christ that's the first 11 verses now if christ is preached and if he has preached that it, if it is preached that he has been raised from the dead How do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So in the Corinthian church, some false teachers had infiltrated and said, resurrection? What? There's no resurrection? And Paul is addressing in this entire chapter that false teaching that there was no resurrection. That false teaching likely came from Greek philosophy, perhaps from Gnosticism, which taught, rightly in part, that man is made up of two aspects. He has a physical and a spiritual, a material and an immaterial component to his being. And that's true. We're outer man and inner man. We have a body and we have a soul. We have a we have a body and we have a spirit. There's that which you, we can see and touch and there is the inward reality of what we really are. That part's true. But what what Greek philosophy and Gnosticism taught was that the body imprisoned the soul and that there was a disconnect between the two and we would say that the two were united to make one being. And what Greek philosophy continued to teach was that at death the soul would, was, was liberated from the body, the soul escaped from the body and was able to enjoy all of the things... That the soul was made to enjoy. Now that the shackles of the body have been let loose. And if the body has been released, or excuse me, the soul has been released from the body, the thinking of the Greek philosophers was, then why would you want a resurrection when you're just going to imprison the soul again? That's not a good idea. In fact, it's that kind of thinking that is behind what is going on in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is At Mars Hill in Athens, 1732 in Acts, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead that Paul was preaching about, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again about this, concerning this. They hated that idea of the resurrection, and Paul was directly confronting that and correcting it. That philosophy that was so pervasive in the culture, had infiltrated the church in Corinth. And this whole chapter is about fighting against that. So the summary statement in verse 58 is affirming, what should we do in light of the resurrection realities? What should we do because the resurrection is true? What are the implications of this true resurrection? Now, as we... Launch into this. I want you to notice in verse 58, the answer to the question, to whom is Paul speaking? Now, notice what he says. Therefore, my beloved brothers. Now, that kind of affectionate greeting is not uncommon in the New Testament. In fact, it's not even uncommon in this letter in chapter 10, Verse 14, the apostle says, Therefore, speaking about the Corinthians, my beloved flee from idolatry. So previously, he's already addressed them as beloved believers. We find similar kind of language. Uh, Sprinkled throughout the New Testament. Just one other example. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 21. That you may also know about my circumstances. And how I am doing. Tychicus the beloved brother. And faithful minister in the Lord. Will make known everything to you. So as Paul thought about Tychicus. He said he is my beloved brother. He's faithful. He's, he's, He's loved. And he's delightful to the apostle. Now think about the people who are receiving this letter from Paul. This is the Corinthian church. And in all honesty, the Corinthians did not particularly seem brotherly. And by that I simply mean, it didn't seem like they were all part of the body of Christ. There, was, there were all kinds of problems within the church. So, for instance, in chapter 3, the apostle begins by addressing their immaturity and saying, you ought to have progressed and they hadn't progressed. You ought to be mature and they aren't mature. And he addresses that. The church was also plagued with significant spiritual problems, sin problems. The the capstone or the highest mark of the sin problems they had included the man that was living in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. That's chapter 5. And the church knew about it. It's not like something was happening clandestinely. This was out in the open And the church knew and they refused to address this man living in perversity. Such perversity that even outside the church, they would say, that's wrong. Even in Corinth, they would say, that's wrong. Not the Corinthian church. Paul called them to repent. They didn't want to repent. This is actually the second letter he's already written to them. He would visit them as well. He would write them two more letters Two of the four letters he has written to them have been lost. We don't know the content of them, though we know that he wrote them. And all of these letters are calling them to repentance. They not only didn't come to repentance, we know from chapter 9 that false teachers rose up in the Corinthian church and they not only began teaching perversity and moving away from the truth, but they attacked the Apostle Paul and were attempting to demean him and demean his ministry. And then compounding that are other kinds of errors that they were engaged in as well for instance in chapter 11 uh, abuses at the communion table so some were coming to the communion table they were excluding others because of their hoarding of the food that was at the table and they were consuming large amounts of alcohol and becoming drunk it was just it was just a massive amount of perversity throughout this church and Paul says therefore my beloved brothers. It's a reminder that whatever the conflict was between Paul and the Corinthians, he views them as brothers that are united to a common head, Jesus Christ, and he treats them that way. And notice he doesn't just say, Therefore, brothers. Therefore, he says, beloved brothers. He doesn't just say, we're in a formal arrangement and I don't really like it and I don't really agree with it, but this is our relationship and so I'm just going to have to deal with it. No, he calls them beloved. Despite his misgivings about them, he considers them to be beloved brothers, They're kin and he is affectionate towards them. That being said, there is as well a a little tone of rebuke in this address, kind of like when I was a child and I might have wandered away from the house at an inappropriate time and I would hear my mother's voice calling Terry Mark and I knew I was in water that was rising (laughs) and if it came out. Terry Mark ends, I knew I was really in trouble. And if I ever got to Terrence, it was all over. <laughs> and there's a little bit of that going on in this passage. In fact, the, the this particular phrase, this exact phrase, the way it's constructed, beloved brothers, is only used six times in the New Testament. And every one of those times, there is a tone of correction with it. For instance, in chapter 4, he uses that very same phrase, verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And we find that as well in Philippians and then three more times in James. So Paul appeals to this body, understanding their connectedness, but also correcting them in loving affection. That's who Paul is addressing. What is Paul summarizing? When he summarizes and says, therefore, what's the summary? And one reason I read that chapter was so I wouldn't have to go back through every single thing in this chapter that he has said about the resurrection. But let me just give you four categories ...for what he says about the resurrection. One is, he summarizes in the first 19 verses... ...the fact of the resurrection... ...the reality of the resurrection. And in the first two verses... ...he's connecting the resurrection to the gospel... ...in essence saying, you don't have a gospel... ...without the resurrection. And then in verses 3 through 10... ...he points to the reality of the resurrection... ...as attested to by all the witnesses... ...that saw the resurrected Christ... And then in verses 11 to 19, he talks about the resurrection as the message of the gospel. It's not just connected to the gospel, it is the very message of that gospel. So, for instance, verse 12, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, that's what we preach. We don't have another message. That is the foundation of our message of the gospel. Christ is raised. So one of the things he's summarizing is the fact of the resurrection. He is also summarizing in verses 20 to 34 the results of the resurrection. Through the resurrection, he will say Christ has a right to rule and we have a basis for persevering in afflictions and in mortifying sin. So just one example, verse 25. Because of the resurrection, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. That's the result of the resurrection. No resurrection, that doesn't happen. But because the resurrection does happen, we have that. Then there is the nature of the resurrection body. And didn't your heart just sing as these verses were read? This is what our bodies will be like. A literal body, an imperishable body, And a spiritual body, verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, that's today. Raised in power, that's the future. Sown a natural or dusty body, as Andrew read. It is raised a spiritual body. That's what's coming. That's the nature of our body. And then in verses 50 to 57, he points to the day of the final resurrection. Without the resurrection, there's no hope for a final resurrection. But because of the resurrection of Christ, there is hope for a final resurrection for all of us that bring about the death of death and the victory of Christ. And now in verse 58, he's tying a bow on that. And it's as if he's even going back to those initial verses. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, verse 4, and he was raised on the third day. That's the heart of it. There is, I think we can say, nothing more important to our salvation than the resurrection of Christ. We speak about the resurrection often because it is the heart of our faith. Without it, we are dead. Verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. He doesn't say it quite that bluntly, but He means you're dead. And you might say, well... But if there's no resurrection and there's just emptiness on the other side, at least if we follow Christ, we've done good things and we've made something of our lives. Paul says that's absolutely wrong. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. You've wasted your life if you'd followed Christ, and it's not true. It's so important. The resurrection is our heartbeat. Many years ago, we had communion on Christmas Eve, as is our typical practice. And then again, we had communion the following Sunday, which is the natural order of events. It's the last Sunday of the month. And so we had communion within about four days, twice. And someone said to me on that occasion, are we having communion again? As if it's a waste of time to remember Christ in the resurrection. No, brothers. (laughs) This is our life. And if we don't have this, we have nothing. This is our heartbeat. That's all introduction. I said there are three ministry tasks. The first of them is this be firm in confidence, be firm in confidence, and in the defense of the resurrection. Paul uses two terms in verse 58 that are opposites to one another to indicate the same truth. He uses an affirmation and a denial, if you will, a positive and a negative to look at the same truth. The first thing he says is that because of the realities of the resurrection, be steadfast, be steadfast, be firm, be rooted Build your ground, build your house on this foundation. And it's a present tense, which means do this continually. But he, he is not saying keep doing what you're doing, for that hasn't been the Corinthian practice. Remember, they've denied the resurrection, so what he is saying is become steadfast. Attach yourself to the resurrection and the significance of this truth and prove yourselves to be continually steadfast in the resurrection. Why? Because to defend the resurrection is to stand on the truth of the gospel. There is a danger in not doing this. And just saying, well... Come on, Terry. Do we, do we have to think about this all the time? Do we, have to, do we have to come back to it again? Avoid worldly and empty chatter, Paul says in his second letter to Timothy. Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them, people who are talking in empty words, are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place. They've perverted the resurrection truth. Paul says perverting that truth is worldly and empty. And then notice what he says at the end. And thus they upset the faith of some. The danger is you you remove the power of the resurrection and you lead people away from Christ. And you destroy their faith. This is of preeminent importance. Be steadfast. Flip side of that statement. Be immovable. Don't be moved away from the resurrection. That word is a warning of the potential to always be swayed away from the gospel and away from the resurrection. Just like a tornado pulls a house off off its foundation, so false teachers can threaten the Uh, inattentive and the weak. They're a constant threat to the permanence of one's salvation. They're a threat to which we always ought to be attentive. And you take, take these two terms, you put them together, be steadfast, be immovable. He is calling us to be vigilant to preserve the truth of the resurrection. Because... Just like with sin, the, na- the nature of the flesh is always to move away from truth. The flesh is always pulling us. It's not that big a deal. Move away, move away, move away. To deny the unique resurrection of Jesus Christ is to deny the gospel. And Paul, having laid a foundation... Of reminding what Christ did in the resurrection simply says, Don't leave this. This is your confidence. This is your hope. Al Mohler has told a story of a French philosopher named Auguste Comte, who once was in conversation with the Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle and said that he planned to start a new religion to replace Christianity. And Carlyle responded to Comte saying, Very well. All you have to do is be crucified, rise the third day, get the world to believe you're still alive, and then your new religion might have a chance. Carlyle was exactly right. Everything in our faith is dependent on this resurrection. Be resolute to defend it and be confident in it, unwavering in that confidence. Secondly, Excel in the Lord's resurrection work. Our confidence in the resurrection is not just a theological truth to uphold. That's true. But that theological truth also directs what we do and how we do what we do. What you believe about the resurrection will direct the way you live. And that's where Paul goes next. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That word abounding is a word that we have seen previously. It means to do something with excellence and it also means to do something with abundance. So Paul uses it in First Thessalonians chapter 4. We've seen this a couple times this year. Finally, brothers, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. There ought to be an abundance of walking in obedience to Christ. Excel, abound, still more. Same word. Verse 10, same chapter. Indeed, all... Indeed, you do practice love toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you brothers to excel, abound still more. Don't, don't just be content with where you are, but pursue even more. Work harder even more. There ought to be a liberality and an excessiveness of our work in the Lord. 1558. Notice, he doesn't just say abounding in work, but he speaks about a particular kind of work, abounding in the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? Well, he's used that word work a number of times in this letter, speaking about things that are done for the sake of Christ. And that's, that's the most basic way to refer to it. It's anything that is done, in the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ, to fulfill Christ's purposes in the church and in the world. So it's not not going to work and punching the clock to gain a salary. It's gospel-oriented work. It's gospel proclamation. It's gospel discipleship. We find that usage in chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. It's work about building into relationships so that people will grow into Christ. That's chapter 9, verse 1. So we might simply say spiritual work, work done for the Lord, is caring for people, caring for those who have been connected to us in Christ's body. And though he doesn't use the word work, we find that exemplified in chapter 12, particularly in verses 4 to 7. And I want you to notice that he doesn't say abounding in all of the fun and frivolity of the Lord's church. Now, it is fun, but let's be honest. There are days it's work, isn't it? In fact, it's not just work. Knowing, notice what he says at the end of this verse, knowing that your toil, that word toil is parallel to work. And that's the simple rendition of it is that's sweaty work. That's when you do this stuff, you're sweating, you're perspiring, it's taking all of your energy, it's taking all of your strength. It wipes you out. That's ministry in the church. In fact, if you just maybe look down into the next chapter, we see what Paul talks about, how that's exemplified in his own life. I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service has opened to me, I can't wait to get to Ephesus. There's a tremendous amount of opportunities in front of me. Oh, and there are many adversaries. I'm going to Ephesus. I can't wait. There's much opposition. It's toil. It's laborious. It's to say it's not always easy. But it is also to say just because it's not easy doesn't mean we pull away. Paul says even when it's laborious... We abound. We excel. We don't move away from the resurrection. But we do move in service. Isn't that interesting? So Paul says, don't move. Be steadfast, immovable. And then he says, always abounding, moving. Don't move from the truth. Always move in service. There's a connectedness between what we believe about the resurrection and what we do. We might summarize Paul's exhortation here in three ways. The resurrection is powerful to change lives. Brothers and sisters, that's got to be our confidence. That's got to be our joy. That's got to be our pursuit. It's this resurrection truth that will change people. That's always where we start. People come into the counseling room. That's where we start. People come for discipleship. That's where we start. People come for church membership. That's where we start. It's always about the resurrection and the gospel. Nothing else is going to change people, only Christ's gospel and his resurrection will. And the resurrection message is also the powerful message to give to others. To say be engaged in resurrection work is a reminder that the heart of our work is the gospel. No matter what we do with the gospel, there's always more. As the church grows and we say, this is, this is fantastic that God, God is bringing more into His kingdom. It doesn't take much to go outside these doors and see the lostness of the world. Even in Granbury, Texas... People are lost. And God is a missionary God. And He would have us to take that message to the world. And this is a reminder as well. It's not a secret. God's revealed Himself. And said, let me unfold the mysteries of the world and tell you how you can have joy. And it's right out there for everyone to know. Now, meanwhile, the world's looking around for this great mystery, this secret, and if I just find the secret, no, Christ is the secret. Ray Jean went for a walk the other day, and she walked around the corner, and there's a guy walking in in his yard. He's barefoot. It was kind of chilly that day, and she thought, that's kind of weird, you know? And he's got some um, memory issues. She's talked to him previously and had discerned that. So she's thinking, you know, the guy is forgotten. And, uh, maybe, maybe his wife will be out there and she, in the house and she can get him and bring him in. And, uh, before she had a chance to talk to him, he initiated the conversation. Hey, I, I need to talk to you. I've, I've read this book. And when she started to relate the book, the story to me, I thought, he read the Bible. <laughs> and he held up the book don't look for it it's called earthing and he said if you take if you take your shoes off and you walk in the dirt you get this magnetic thing going on and and you can be healed of all the physical ills in your body and I, and i got a pacemaker a while back and and i really don't need a pacemaker if i just take off my shoes and walk around in the dirt the Great Secret! No, brothers and sisters, the great secret is resurrected Christ. And that's what we're taking to the world. Third, reality. Resurrection work may be hard, but it is necessary, it is possible, and it is worthwhile. MacArthur writes in his commentary. What a word Paul gives to the countless Christians who work and pray and give and suffer as little as they can. How can we be satisfied with the trivial, insignificant, short-lived things of the world? How can we take it easy when so many around us are dead spiritually and so many fellow believers are in need of edification, encouragement, and help of every sort When can a Christian say, I've served my time, I've done my part, let others do the work now. I've heard people say that, almost verbatim. I've done my duty, I'm done, I'm going to play golf. And people are dying. Oh, brothers and sisters, thank you for being the kind of church that lives and believes the resurrection of Christ and let us excel still more. The work's not done and there's a world that needs redemption. A final thing he calls us to in this verse is be confident in the rewards of the resurrection. What's our motivation? Why do we do this? Why do we work? Why do we work hard? Because we know something. Notice the end of the verse. Knowing that your toil is not vain in the Lord it's not vanity it's not purposelessness you haven't wasted your life i think the apostle is thinking about things he has already said in this chapter about himself and his own life verse 10 by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace has, his grace toward me did not Prove vain. It wasn't empty. His grace in redeeming me has produced a prophet. He is also demonstrating that the resurrection proves that there's no vanity in labors. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. It's empty. It's worthless. It's wasted. But he has been raised and so it is not vain. It's not empty. Christ has been raised. There is no waste. He will accomplish everything that He has purposed for us and through us. And I think He also means us to understand this. It's not only that it's not vain. He also means us to understand there is reward. There's benefit. Chapter 3, we don't have time to walk through it, but just maybe right in your margin there, verses 15 to 18, He talks about the testing of a man's work. Excuse me. Verses uh, ten through fifteen. Three ten through fifteen. And there's a testing that's coming in heaven. Each man's work will become evident. Verse thirteen. Because the day will show it. Because it's going to be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. It's all going to be tested. Everything we do will be put under the furnace flame of God's holy purity to examine its intent its goal, its effectiveness. And if it remains, verse 14, he will receive a reward. If a man's work is burned, verse 15, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. We're not talking about salvation here. All those whose work is going to be tested are saved. The question is, do you get reward or not? This idea of getting reward... As our motivation is reinforced by Jesus Christ Himself, He tells us in Matthew chapter 6 to lay up treasures in heaven. This is what He's talking about. We ought to be putting aside, investing in eternity. And one writer says about Christ's words, It is not wrong to take Christ at His word that believers should store up treasures in heaven. It is not wrong to strive for that goal. In fact, not striving for rewards in heaven is disobeying Christ's command. Be confident of what He has promised. And be confident that if you work for Him, resurrection work, you're not wasting your life and you are sending ahead rewards to be experienced from our gracious God. When I was... Considering going into vocational ministry, a mentor counseled me with words something like this. If God is calling you to pastoral ministry, do not stoop to being something as low as the President of the United States. And brothers and sisters, that doesn't just apply for men who are called to pastoral ministry. It's for all of us. Why would we stoop to anything else if God has called us into His service And carrying resurrection truth to others. That doesn't mean ministry will be easy. There are times when it will be toil. But it does mean that it will always be worthwhile. As we serve our resurrected Savior. Who has granted granted resurrection truth to us. And promised resurrection to us. Father thank you for the morning. Thank you for the reminder of this resurrection. Thank you that we can think even more deeply of the resurrection and now as we come to the table of communion. Might our hearts for those of us who have been saved by Jesus Christ sing as we come to this table in recognition of your provision for us in the resurrection. And as we prepare to take these elements, Might we do so in a manner that is worthy of Christ who was resurrected for us? Might we examine ourselves to see if we have wandered away into habits and activities that are pulling us away from fellowship with you? And might we delight in your provision of forgiving grace for that fellowship. And Father, might you also be pleased to bring some who may be here this morning who don't know Christ as their Savior to contemplate the resurrection of Christ, to contemplate the depth of their sin. And might they reach for Christ and move toward Christ in repentance and faith, turning away from their sin and turning to Christ and find that He will give them new resurrection life. Thank you, Father, for the morning and for the time around this precious truth of the resurrection. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.